And uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew 21 this morning. So you, if you want to turn there, that would be great. Again, if you want to use a pew Bible today, you can find the text on page 775 and uh, Matthew 21 this morning. As we come to this chapter, uh, we've seen now in Matthew three times when Jesus has predicted his death to his disciples. Uh, we saw that in Matthew 16, right after Peter's great confession. We saw it again in the next chapter, chapter 17. And then just recently, we saw it in chapter 20, where he's told his disciples that the Son of Man would have to go to Jerusalem to die. Now, each time he gave a little bit of a different detail, maybe got a little bit more explicit as time went on, but the main point was there. So by the time we come to this chapter then, his, his followers would have had to have been at least ignoring or even disbelieving Jesus' words to miss the purpose of what this trip to Jerusalem was going to be for. Now, if we compare this passage with other books of Scripture, especially the Gospel of John, we know that this visit was a Passover week visit to Jerusalem. And as one of the main feasts of the Jews, it was expected, at least on paper, uh, that they would be making this pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast. And Jesus did. Uh, and while this is his only recorded trip to Jerusalem in Matthew, we know that Jesus made multiple trips through the three years of ministry that he had on earth. But in Matthew, we're only reserved this, this one single account. And it's an important one because while it is a Passover, like the many that Jesus had attended before and like the thousands that had been celebrated up until this point, this time, this week, the Passover would be truly fulfilled for the first time. This time it would not just be many lambs killed and blood shed and, and a meal eaten in a remembering way. No, this time it would be the Lamb of God who would be killed, his blood shed, and he would become, as it were, spiritual food and drink for thousands, for millions who would come to call upon him. So as we come to Matthew 21, our, our journey then to the end of the book of Matthew sort of begins. Um, the lion's share of the rest of the whole gospel record is given to this one week. Uh, we find, as we usually celebrate the week before Easter, that Palm Sunday uh, is where this all begins. And uh, that was the Sunday of the Passover week. Exactly one week later, Jesus will have already been arrested, tried, beaten, crucified, buried, and has risen again. So just one week covers all that. And, and also, over a quarter of all the materials in the gospel records, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a quarter of those are given to, record, to recording just this one week. But it's no wonder because really the, this is going to be the most important week in human history. Since the creation and fall of mankind, everything has been looking forward to this week that we're going to begin studying, to this week and the deliverance that would take place 
in it. Now, there had been promises of deliverance. There had been small and large deliverances as signs and as reminders, but this would be the ultimate one. In the Gospels, in Matthew, really in in history, everything begins to change here in a major way in Matthew 21. Not only in the book do we see that the scenery and the location change, we also see the focus and the, the kind of teaching change. We see Jesus' interactions and his openness about who he is. That changes, and everything changes as he bears the sin of the world. And it all starts right here with the triumphal entry. So without further ado, then, let's get into the text. And we're going to read Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem marks the beginning of the end of his earthly ministry. And what unfolds, not only here, but in the rest of this week, shows who he truly is. We also will see, though, that it does divide his followers from his enemies. Let's pause for prayer before we get into this very important text this morning. Father, we thank you that we can that we can look at this historical account, this amazing little detail that you've put into your word to tell us about this fulfillment, about this entrance, about this this remarkable week and how it began in such a humble yet interesting and and simply glorious way. Lord, help us to grasp the importance of, of everything that we've been learning and seeing up until this point and how now it's about to unfold into the beauty of redemption. There will be much opposition. There will be much hatred. There will be much blood. Yet, Lord, it is part of your plan and thank you for revealing it to us in your word. So help us now. Lord, I do pray for those even now who are struggling with 
with illness or or ongoing troubles, those even who who can't be here today because of those things. Lord, please, as we as we see in this text, you are the humble king, the king of peace. And as we've sung and read in the scriptures that you are our strength and you will not let us fail. Lord, may we come to you even as you present yourself to us this morning. Would we run to you and rest in you? But would we also rejoice because you are that king? Lead us, even now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you're following along in your bulletin, you'll see in verse number one, we're nearing the end of the journey. And uh, I mean by that, the gospel record is starting to wind to a close. But also, uh, if you remember back several months ago before Christmas, when we were studying in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus and his disciples started a journey then from Caesarea Philippi that would go south all the way to Jerusalem. It was a total, would be a total of about a hundred mile journey that would be traveled between Matthew 16 and now Matthew 21, where they come into Jerusalem. They traveled back into Galilee. They went to Judea, uh, east of the Jordan, and then they would take that easterly route down through Jericho into Jerusalem. Now in Matthew, what we have mostly in those in-between times is teaching. Uh, Now, John tells us a little extra detail that on the way down is when Jesus stops in a little town called Bethany where his friends live, and one of his friends, Lazarus, had died. And, of course, we know the story. Jesus wept with them, and then he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, Bethany was very near to Bethphage, which is where we pick up our story today. Bethphage isn't on a map that you'll find today, but uh, historically we know it was probably just a mile or two to the east of the gates of Jerusalem on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. Those, all these places will be very, very important as we go on in the text of Matthew in the weeks to come. The interesting thing about Bethphage, however, is that even though it was just outside of Jerusalem, on special occasions... It was actually part of Jerusalem. We mentioned that this was a Passover week in Jerusalem, which means many, many, many people were making this pilgrimage. And in the Talmud, in the section on the Passover, it was recorded that for this week, Jerusalem's borders expanded because it was so flooded with people during these celebrations that in order for people to actually be in Jerusalem, Well, Jerusalem had to get a little bit bigger. So Bethphage, a mile or two outside the city, actually became part of Jerusalem legally for this week. This little town to the east of of Jerusalem is where this scene would begin to unfold. But interestingly, it's more more than about just the borders and how those shifted. There's something interesting also about this idea of entering to the east of Jerusalem. There are many references in scripture to the coming of the Lord and the glory of the Lord in the east of Jerusalem. I want to read to you a few of them. In Zechariah 14 verse 4, we see this prophecy that 
on that day, his feet, that is the Lord, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Another prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 11 Verse 23 says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now again in Ezekiel chapter 43, we read this, Then he led me to the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. So it's interesting that when we see in this text Jesus and his entourage entering Jerusalem from the east, it is a little glimpse, not a full fulfillment yet, but it is a little glimpse and a taste of when one day he will come for the last time into this city as a victorious warrior. He will come with the sound of many waters and the earth will shine with his glory. This time, though, he's coming in from the east, and he is coming in with some fanfare, as we're going to read, but this time he's not going to be coming on a horse of war. He's going to be coming as a humble king and a peaceful king, one who will not bear the sword but will willingly lay down his life to the spear and to the nails of the cross. We know from the last chapter that we read that Jesus by this time had a great crowd following him. And it would have been in large part the the fanfare of Jesus. And it would have been an entourage involved in making this pilgrimage to come to to Jerusalem for the Passover. And and you've got to think if you'd been in Galilee and you'd seen Jesus and known him and heard his teaching and you knew he was going to Jerusalem, then what better travel party to join in than Jesus and his disciples, right? So there was a large crowd following him, and they were probably all Galileans, like Jesus and his disciples. They weren't from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was quite a bit to the south of their homeland. They were almost treated as foreigners when they came to Jerusalem. In fact, a little bit later in the in the Gospels when we hear Peter denying the Lord, and one of them asked, oh, aren't you one of them? Aren't you? You're a Galilean, and they recognize his accent. So this whole band of followers were, they were outsiders coming in for the feast. It was a big and exciting time for anyone. We could pause here for a minute and consider how, from the human level, Jesus may have been thinking about a lot of things He had been coming here since he was just a boy. Do you remember the story in Luke 2 about how Jesus and his parents came to Jerusalem for Passover? And it says they did that every year. Now, at that time, Jesus wound up in the temple for three days, answering questions from the religious leaders. That was one of many trips, one of many times with the excitement and the crowds. But again, this would be the last for Jesus. It would be the beginning of the end. Also, this would be the last Passover that many of his followers would celebrate 
with the same meaning. After this one, everything changes. Even more than the last three years of of his teaching and miracles, what was going to take place this week would change everything. And we see it starts in this curious way as he shows yet again another sign. Look at verses 2 again and following. He said to them, he sent two disciples, verse 1, and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Jesus gets into the the legal boundaries of Jerusalem there in Bethphage, and he immediately gets to work. He knows what needs to happen next. He has a plan. Now, all through Matthew, we've been seeing the emphasis in the book is, is fulfillment. I think this is the 11th or 12th time in this passage that we read of a prophecy that Matthew says, this was done in order to fulfill, or all this was to fulfill what was said by the prophet. Jesus fulfills so many of these prophecies, but he also fulfills the types and the images from the Old Testament. To fulfill means not just to do, but it means to to bring to its intended purpose, to bring to its, its full end. That is, there were many things, like the Feast of the Passover, that were significant and important, but they didn't find their fullness or their true intention until Jesus showed what they were really about. Now, here is one of those, and it comes from a prophecy in in Zechariah 9. Now, Matthew actually quotes from, from Isaiah and Zechariah here, but the main part of the quote about the coming king of Zion is a prophecy of a ruler of peace. I want to read the quote and then a, one verse also in Zechariah 9 that goes with it. It says there, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be cut off, and he shall speak peace. To the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This donkey then was to be a picture of the king coming in peace, not at this time coming in battle. The king's intention again was not to bear a sword at this time, but to make peace. Jesus' entire ministry and his teaching about the kingdom of God had turned people's perceptions upside down. Many people were looking for a warrior king to overthrow the the puppet kings that had been set up by Rome. They were looking for a, a, a valiant leader with a sword to deliver Israel into true freedom again politically. They were looking for somebody of great military valor and strength to champion them into into vindication so that they would not be the laughingstock of the nations anymore. Israel's history goes to great lengths to show us how people attempted to rise up. If you read in the, the history in the period of the Maccabees, for instance, you'll see great warriors who rose up. 
Some people even thought some of those men were messiahs because they led people in, in military and political valor. But now, and for the last three years, Jesus had been teaching about the blessedness of the meek and the lowly. And even just within the last chapters, he's been telling us about the greatness of the weak and the little children. He's been teaching about how how leadership in his kingdom is not won by pride or respect of persons, but on the basis of God's gracious choice. He taught us how he himself came to be a servant. And now he will show this crowd of followers and the people on the way into Jerusalem just what he means by that. He will fulfill this prophecy of Zechariah 9 as he rides in humbly on a colt of a donkey. This peaceful king who, though one day he will ride on a horse of war, for now he rides on a beast of burden. And he will bear the burden of the sins of the world in just a few short days. So he tells two disciples, go and and you'll find a donkey and her colt tied up. Bring them to me. Now, as a kid, when I read this story and heard it, my mind always went to the, the poor owner of this donkey and, and her little colt. They're just going to be taken by these random men, these, these strangers from Galilee. But there's more going on than that. And there's maybe a couple levels because one way or another, Jesus had arranged this. It's possible that since he had friends just a few miles away in Bethany, with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that he used their connections to to secure this donkey. But even if not, if we go into a deeper level, Jesus is showing his sovereignty here. If someone asked what the disciples were doing, all they had to say is, the Lord has need of them. Now, some people think that might have been a code word that Jesus had arranged with the owner of the donkey in order to to make sure his disciples could actually retrieve it. That that may be part of it, but in reality, what a statement that is. Jesus is sovereign over the things of the earth, and when he needs them, that's a good enough answer. The Lord needs it. When Jesus is at work fulfilling here his Father's plan, Nothing gets in his way. It's it's really a a microcosm of the whole visit to Jerusalem. Because you see the, the arrest and the trial and the beatings and the crucifixion to come, they were, in a sense, from the devil and from the leaders of Jerusalem point of view, they were meant to stop him. But little did they know that the trial and the whips and the nails and the cross were tools in the hands of God, in order to accomplish his eternal plan. That's how it works in Jesus' sovereignty. He can use something so humble as the the foal of a donkey to show his majestic rulership. And he can use something so gruesome and vile and torturous as a cross to make peace. 
peace with God for all who will follow him. And if that's the case, then don't you think he can use even the unexpected and undesirable parts of life to work a greater weight of glory? Don't you think that this sovereign, peaceful king who who calms storms and multiplies food can work all things together for good to those who love him? He can, and he does, because he is the king, the peaceful king. And we see him then, as we pick up again in verse number six, entering now in humble majesty. The disciples went, verse 6, and and did as Jesus had directed them. And a little bit of note on obedience there. Since Jesus is sovereign and working the, the divine plan, it makes only sense to obey his commands and his call. They may seem strange to others at time. Why are you taking my donkey? They may garner questions, but they are good because they are from the Lord who is doing his perfect will. So they obey and they bring the beasts and Matthew records that there were two of them, the, the, the donkey and her, her little colt, her little foal. And uh, it may be necessary that that foal was so young that it needed its mother. We read other places that it had never been ridden before. And the poetic form of the prophecy tells us that it would be the foal that Jesus would ride on. So they bring these two animals and the disciples put their coats, their cloaks over the beasts as sort of a, a makeshift saddle pad. And Jesus sat on those cloaks. But there's more to the cloaks because as we read on in verse number eight, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. They spread them on the ground, which was certainly a sign of honor. It was a a nice gesture, but it was also reminiscent of welcoming a king. One example in 2 Kings chapter 9, when the prophet Elisha anointed Jehu as king, we read that when they heard the news in 2 Kings 9, 13, in haste, every man took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Well, the cloaks covered the hard back of the young donkey. They covered the bare, dusty streets. The cloaks made the way more beautiful. The cloaks showed submission and honor. The cloaks showed reverence and offering. But more than that, the cloaks said, he's king. Now, as they went on, it seems like they either ran out of cloaks or they just wanted to keep up the fanfare. So they they cut down branches from the trees, uh, verse number, the second part of verse number eight, and spread them out on the road. The branches were a, a common celebratory item. They were almost a patriotic display. They were symbolic in several of these feasts of the Jews. They were used in parades of victory at times of war. All of these things were pointing to the exaltation and the celebration of Jesus. Did they fully understand who Jesus was yet? Did they fully understand his mission? Most of them 
probably did not. It really was only the, the 12 who Jesus had told the secret that he had to go to Jerusalem and be given over and die and rise again. But this crowd knew there was something special. And what's most significant here is that Jesus let them go on with this behavior. And he let them go on, not just with their actions of honor, but he then lets them speak. And they were shouting, verse number nine. The crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. This is the saying that we remember each year on on Palm Sunday, and it is a royal saying. The word Hosanna means save now or, or save us now. It is a call of salvation, first and foremost. They're they're calling out to now this Jesus who they perceive to be a king, and they are saying, save us, or at least maybe they're saying to the Lord, to God, Lord, save us through this man. But when used in conjunction with the, the title of a king, the son of David, it's a royal blessing. We read in the Psalms a couple different times where the Psalm might end with a, a phrase, God, save the king, which means more than just preserve a man's life. It means to preserve his righteous rule, to preserve his, his, his statutes and his judgments. These people were at once crying out for salvation and also crying out that Jesus was this new king. They were crying out for his purpose to be for his work to be sustained. And how much of that they understood, we don't really know. But it was true more than they could even possibly express. And they kept, they kept speaking, they kept saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that comes right out of Psalm 118. And Psalm 118, we won't read that again. We've read it today. But Psalm 118 is is not a random, just something that came to their mind here. Interestingly, Psalm 118 is the last of what is known as the, the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Originally were written and sung in remembrance of victory of coming out of Egypt And then these psalms from Psalm 113 to 118 were recited at most of the common feasts, the major feasts in Jerusalem, especially around Passover. So the people were used to singing this on the way to Jerusalem after the Passover meal. But this time the words had new meaning to them. This time they applied to Jesus. He was the one who came in the name of the Lord. To them, at least, Jesus had come in the power and authority and might and with the mission of the Lord God himself. Little did they know that he was the Lord God himself. Now the disciples had learned that. Peter cried out again before they made this journey down to Jerusalem that you are the Christ, 
the son of the living God. And this crowd now was catching on to something. But again, what is remarkable here and what's most fascinating, I think, if you've been following through Matthew with us, is that Jesus lets them keep saying these things. Because up until just recently in Matthew, he would have hushed these kinds of cries. He would have quieted these kinds of of exaltations. We could go to four or five places just in Matthew, let alone the other gospel records. But just a couple, for instance, Matthew 8, when Jesus healed a man with leprosy, something that they had not seen done, especially since Jesus touched the man. Well, the man had been healed, and Jesus said to him, verse 4, of Matthew 8, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. That kind of quietness was common when Jesus went across the, the Sea of Galilee to deliver uh, a whole host of demons out of men. He told them the same thing. Don't, don't tell anyone who did this. Of course, in that case, they sort of joyfully disobeyed, and they went out as witnesses in that region. In Matthew 9, when Jesus healed two blind men, this was his command in verse 30 and 31. Their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. That was an amazing thing. If you recall, we've noted that All throughout the Old Testament and all the miracles and healings that we see there, even with dead being raised, we don't ever see blind receiving back their sight. But the blind receiving their sight was one of the signs of the coming of the servant of the Lord, who we know is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. But in Matthew 9, Jesus wasn't ready. It wasn't time for that news to get out. But just one chapter ago, there's a similar scene where two blind men again needed healing. And they cried out, if you remember, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And you remember that time, Jesus did not hush them. He did not send them off. But there in front of the whole crowd following him, he healed them. He opened their blinded eyes. He was the son of David. You see, Jesus' time had come. The time of secrecy was over. Before, for whatever reason, in the wisdom of the Lord, it would have been too early. Had he stirred the anger of the religious leaders much before this, it it would not have been his time or his hour, as the Gospel of John speaks about it. But now the secret is out. The time has come. Jesus is going into Jerusalem to face the very ones who are holding Israel's sway in their religious politics, in their traditionalism that shaded the true meaning of the kingdom. And he is going to set his people free. 
those who will follow him will be redeemed by this humble king. Going on to verse 10, we see that they were stirring an entire city. Uh, when, we, when we read this verse, he went, when he entered Jerusalem, so he's, he's inside the legal limits in Bethphage. He gets the, the, the foal. He rides on it. They throw their coats down. They cut the branches. They sing, Hosanna, blessed is he. And as he's coming into Jerusalem, this would have been just a short ride. The whole city saw Jesus, they saw the fanfare, they saw the branches, they heard the words, and they were stirred up. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Now, this might sound familiar to you, because while this is the only Jerusalem trip uh, that, that Matthew records of Jesus, he does that, I think, to make certain emphasis that this was the main trip. But he does give us one other Jerusalem trip in his gospel record to compare it to, not of Jesus. But in Matthew 2, there is another story where the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred. Let me read it for you. Now, after... Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Matthew 2, verse 1, of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who had been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. You see that over 30 years previous, another entourage came into Jerusalem with loud shouts and came in from the east nonetheless. And their question, where is your new king? We know he's been born. We've seen his star. Don't you know where he is? Where is the king? And Herod and the whole city were stirred and troubled because they weren't expecting a new king. And now, now it had come full circle because this time the entourage is joyfully trotting in next to a man on a young donkey with cloaks for a saddle and branches for a road paving. And they say, this is the king. He's here. When the wise men came, the, Herod asked his chief priests, where is the Christ to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem. But this time, the entourage answers the question, the Messiah, the Christ, he's here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the people were stirred up yet again. This time for a different reason. Before, it was a question, what, what new king? This time, they're faced with a decision. This is the new king? He's the king? What do we do with him? Who is this? 
The people had probably heard the cries, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And in Mark and in Luke, it's recorded that they even used the word king in their cries. The, under, the crowd understood, the, the crowds there that heard them understood that they were saying, this is the king, he's coming in. But they wanted to know, who is this? Jesus wasn't a resident of Jerusalem. He was there maybe a few times of, of a few times a year with thousands of other people that had visited for the feast, but he was a Galilean. He wasn't a, a new Roman appointed ruler to overthrow Herod. He was the son of David. In fact, that's right where Matthew began to teach us over 20 chapters ago, isn't it? The book starts, the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The whole point of this book up until now has been to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king of the kingdom. All the teaching has been to tell us about the kingdom, how it works, who can enter it, how we behave in it, what it is like. And now we're getting to the point where the rubber meets the road because there is a kingdom in Israel with Herod as ruler. There are Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and lawyers. There are religious elites in Jerusalem who call the shots, who try to keep peace with Rome and live a comfortable life. There are people who are fed up with it all, looking for a, a strong deliverer, a, a military leader. There's the kingdom of Rome, who is really ruling over all these nations through puppets and appointees. But then there is the real king. The real king of the real kingdom. A kingdom that Jesus will say shortly in his trial that is not of this world a kingdom that doesn't exist and, and exert its force through, through, pro, through bribes and politics and military action, a kingdom with a king who rides in on a donkey and he stirred the whole city. Matthew doesn't give us the details of the people's thoughts of why they were stirred, which is fitting because... No doubt they were stirred for various reasons. You see, many were stirred and still are stirred by Jesus and who he is. Some at this time would be stirred to follow him. Like a thief on the cross or a, or a Roman soldier who said, this man has done nothing. Some would be stirred to curiosity, wondering who he is, maybe watching from the shadows. Some would be stirred to amazement as he puts back on a, a, a soldier's ear after Peter cuts it off. Some would be stirred to further hatred, like even Judas, his own disciple. Some would be stirred to fear and running away like all of the twelve in the garden upon his arrest. Some, mainly the rulers, the leaders, would be stirred to crucify him. 
Yes, in a real way, all are stirred by Jesus in one way or the other. Even now, some are stirred to annoyance. Uh, hearing about that Jesus again. Isn't that enough with these Christians and their message about Jesus? Some are stirred to despise and they persecute the followers of Christ. Some are stirred to interest and they look at Jesus as a, a good teacher or admire him as a great man. Some are stirred to even act against him and attempt to throw his, he and his ways out of public discourse. While yet still some are stirred to follow him, to trust him, to enter his kingdom. And I would ask at this point in the story of the Gospels, where the rubber is meeting the road, where Jesus' identity is really coming out. Of course, we've known all along. He's the king who came and lived and died and rose again. And we're just getting to that part of the story now. But still, as we come to this point and the question begins to be asked, who is this? Has Christ stirred you? No doubt he has touched your life in some way. Even just hearing this story, he has touched your life. Maybe, forbid it, I hope, that you're stirred to further disinterest or your familiarity stirs only boredom. But I pray, I pray you are stirred in a holy sense to faith and to follow him. And to say truly, Hosanna to the king. Well, finally, the last verse in this section is the answer of the crowds who were following him. They hear the, the people in Jerusalem stirred up and saying, who is this? And, and the crowds replied in a very simple way. This is a prophet from, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Of Galilee. Now, this is a fairly unremarkable answer on its surface. Um, it was just a matter of fact, kind of a bare minimum knowledge. Like a lot of people didn't know any of the claims of Jesus, but they knew he was a healer and a teacher. So it may have been him just saying general truth. This is a prophet. I know he's from Nazareth of Galilee. His name is Jesus. But for some, that would have been a deeper statement because many people were waiting for what was promised in Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses who was to come. That was part of the messianic expectation of, of the Jews. And Moses would have been on their mind as they were beginning the celebrations of Passover, the story would have been in their readings, in their recitations. In essence, the, the people between the lines could have been saying, along with the fact that he is Messiah and King, he is the prophet. He is everything we've been waiting for. Prophet and King. Yes, here was the, the better son of David, and here was the true and better Moses. And very soon, Jesus would do the work of 
of another great role that is his, and that is as priest, prophet, priest, and king. And as priest, he would make sacrifice by becoming sacrifice. He would fulfill the Passover by shedding his blood so that the Lord would have mercy on and pass over all who are covered by it. Yes, the time had come. Everything was different. You see what a remarkable unfolding we're going to be getting into now. Do you see that this Jesus, for who he truly is, in the weeks to come in Matthew, we will see the strongest language of opposition. We will see the strongest rebukes of Jesus uh, for the, the religious leaders. And we live in a time even now where Jesus is, is hardly a take him or leave him kind of guy. Jesus is truly the real king of the ultimate kingdom. And if that is the case, then all must come to terms with him. All must ask this question as they're faced with him. Who is this? And when given the answer, everybody must say, I follow him. I'm going to ignore him. He really is the sovereign Lord who gave his life for us. And if that is true, which it is, then we must reckon with it for ourselves. Lord, thank you for this little beginning of this wonderful unfolding of your passion and Lord, just sanctify our minds and our hearts as we meditate on these things in the weeks to come. But may we constantly be asking this question, who are you, Lord, if we don't know that? And if we do, may we say, you are, Lord. I will follow you. The King of peace the son of David, the true and better Moses, the priest who both gave and was the sacrifice and now who stands in our place and our righteousness is yours. Lord, would we come to terms with that daily in thanksgiving? And maybe, Lord, somebody hearing this would come to grip it now in their heart. And that you would enter in truly as the king of peace for them. Lord, it is amazing what we've seen and what you've done for us.